0: Amen. Good. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Joy. Thank you, worship team. We're going to go ahead and dismiss the middle school and the kids. So I just want to say welcome tonight to everybody and to those who are participating online. I'm Hazen Stevens. I'm the executive pastor here at Gate City, and we're starting a new series tonight on what it means to live with an open, vulnerable heart. And if that's language you're not familiar with, it's It's language we've begun using in the past few months to describe what it means to live in connection to one another in spiritual family. And it's not just a term that we began using because it suited our purposes. It's a term that we actually find in scripture, and I'm gonna jump into that in just a moment. But I just wanna set up this series that I get to preach the first message of tonight and say that we're gonna have Larry Bolden with us and we're going to have a different kind of format in the next two weeks. Larry Bolden is the head of a ministry called Wellspring Group. Many different ones who are in our spiritual family have been a part of this small group ministry over the years. I've been a, first a participant in the ministry and then a volunteer and a facilitator over the past decade. And I would say that this ministry outside of the house of prayer and this church has had the largest impact on my life. It gave me a context in which I could form real community with a group of men that provided healing that I desperately needed, and I believe I couldn't get through any other means except community, real authentic community. And so when we talk about living in authentic community or spiritual family, there's lots of different kinds of terms that you can use to describe what it means to live genuinely connected in love and in relationship to each other. We're talking about what we want to accomplish here at Gate City Church in terms of being a spiritual family. We're talking about something that the Bible describes that we're to be towards one another. We're supposed to be brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. And we've been talking about in different moments what it means to live in cultural reconciliation and in generational reconciliation and what it means to live united as family. And of course, family is the main metaphor that we see over and over in scripture that is used to describe both our relationship to God. He is a father to us. Our father who is in heaven is how we're to pray. And then of course, it's a familiar relationship when we look at the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom, that marital union is the foundation of family, right? And so we see these pictures that describe to us how we're to relate to God and we relate to God in this, the family is the picture of how we relate to God. And it's also a picture of how we're to relate to each other. Now there are other metaphors he could have used. He could have used the metaphor of a business. He could have used the metaphor of an army. He could have used any number of metaphors to describe, and and some of those, are used, but the primary one that we see repeated over and over and over again is one of family. And so we describe the church here, Gate City Church, one of our aspirations and our goals is to be spiritual family. But I want to tell you something tonight, and that's why we're doing this series. You can't have authentic community and authentic spiritual family unless you first live in open-hearted vulnerability. And I'll define more specifically what that means. But I want you to think about this. As we begin to frame up, what does it mean to live in spiritual family corporately? There has to be a part that you play individually. I'll say it again. I'll say it to this side of the room. (laughs) As you seek to live in corporate family, and even within your own family, there's no group of people that it's harder to accomplish this in. oftentimes than our own families. You can't have real unity, real spiritual family without first learning how to live in open-hearted vulnerability, right? So that's my brief introduction. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to pray right now for us. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me as we jump into this series and the first step of understanding what it means to live in open hearted vulnerability is to really define what that means and what keeps us from going there and what we get when we live there. Amen. Amen. All right. Father, I thank you very much for this room full of people that have showed up on a Wednesday night to hear about what it means to live with an open heart. And I appeal to you right now, my father who is in heaven come behind my weak words and convey revelation to us that will let us live in deeper connection to one another than ever before. I pray the gift of true spiritual family and unity would be born out of the revelation that you give in this series and in many other teachings and times of prayer. I ask for the unusual gift of the fellowship of the spirit of God among us, helping us to see one another as brother, sister, mother, father, not in brokenness or distortion, but in true love, unity, sacrifice, commitment. I pray, Lord, release the revelation of what it means for us to play our part in vulnerability and authenticity. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So even as joy was leading us in worship and we were singing, God, you became a man, you put on flesh, you're so beautiful. You know, I was considering the notes that I prepared, but the Lord kind of shifted a little portion of what I want to teach tonight, and he said, really begin talking about the open-hearted vulnerability of the man, Christ Jesus. And if you're taking notes tonight or you're watching online, you're typing up some notes, it's a good idea to do that because there's going to be some good stuff by the grace of God. I want to define first open-hearted vulnerability, and then I want us to see the vulnerability of Jesus, right? So this idea of open-hearted vulnerability, in really simple terms, I think of it as one who generously gives and receives love. Okay? Open-hearted vulnerability is someone that generously receives and gives love. Now, there are two ditches on the side of giving and receiving love that we can fall into. We can become narcissistic and we can really enjoy the receiving and fail to be good at the giving okay we can also be proud and self-sufficient and be really good at the giving and not very good at the receiving and both of those are different ways in which we protect ourselves from a kind of vulnerability that comes only when you live in the tension of both giving and receiving love Look at somebody in the room and say, you need to learn to give and you need to learn to receive. How many of you know there have been different points in your marriage or in your close friendship where you, because of a hurt, because of a pain, because of a challenge in your life, you shut down one part of your heart. Maybe you said, you know what? It's too painful for me to keep giving and not receiving. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stop giving unless this person helps me receive, right? Or maybe it was too hard to be the recipient because that put you in an unusual place of insecurity to have to actually need another person. And you shut down your heart and you said, you know what, it's fine for me to give love, but it's not fine for me to receive love. But true intimacy, interdependence, unity comes from both the giving and receiving of love. And that's not just in interpersonal relationships. You need to give and receive love in relationship to Jesus. That's what he's looking for. And isn't that amazing that God says you have something, his heart is, and this is what I want to open us with tonight. His heart is actually vulnerable to your love. Meaning, he says, this is what I want. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it matters to me if you do. That means that to some degree, the way in which you choose to love or not love Jesus affects him. He is vulnerable to you. Though he is the transcendent God of the universe, the holy one of Israel, the uncreated one, the one who Isaiah 40 says he calls the starry hosts out by name and not one of them is missing. That one, he says, your love matters to him. And the fact that you receive his love matters to him because he himself is an open-hearted, vulnerable lover. And you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ than to see the degree to which God was willing to become vulnerable and open-hearted to display his affection toward you. There's no greater picture of vulnerability than this man crowned with thorns where there should have been a crown of gold, stripped naked where there should have been a royal robe, hands that only healed and did good and blessed children and multiplied food for the hungry and caused the paralytics to walk and touched lepers and caused them to be clean. Those hands pierced, feet that brought the gospel, the good news to the earth, the transcendent holy God, sinless, putting on flesh. Nailed by sinful and wicked men to a wooden cross. His side pierced, pierced literally through the heart, up through his rib cage. Bleeding there. His love and vulnerability towards all humanity on open display for all eternity. Still they worship him in heaven. Behold the lamb of God who is slain. What is heaven worship? The sacrifice motivated by love of this one who came to give freely and generously of his heart. This is how we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. So we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is the world tells you you need to give in order to get. You need to defend and play the game and protect. You need to only give when you're confident that your giving is going to be received the way you expect. You need to keep your defenses up because it's a tough world out there and you don't know how someone might hurt you if you show them that you're weak. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And it's not safe to be open and vulnerable. And can I tell you that that is 100% the truth if you don't have a paradigm that says this is actually how the kingdom operates in the midst of a wicked, perverse, and dark world. And how does the kingdom operate? It lets the world crucify you to demonstrate the love of God. What if Jesus had self-protected? Scripture actually tells us he had every opportunity to protect his heart and to protect his physical body. He says to Peter, don't you know I could call down 12 legions of my father's angels? He could have chosen to wash his disciples' feet after Judas was excused from the Last Supper. But instead, he washes the feet of his betrayer. And he knows who his betrayer is because he says to Peter, or he says to John, excuse me, it's the one with whom I dip my hand in the cup at the same time. And he actually says to Judas, go and do quickly what you're going to do. He knew the one that would betray him and he chose to wash his feet, to be open-hearted and vulnerable, literally to take off his garment and in humility bow before the one who only hours later would betray him to his death. That's how the kingdom says we're to operate. And I'll tell you before the end of the message. Many of you hear me, you go, "That, that that's Jesus, but that's not me, right? No, I'm telling you, beloved, that is we as He is in the world, so we are called also to be, to love our enemies, not just forgive our enemies, but to love them. And that picture of vulnerability and open heartedness, there is a source in heaven a heavenly father, a Holy spirit that can actually so supply your needs and make you confident in your identity in such a manner that you can make yourself vulnerable in those situations without fear. And Jesus allows his friend to betray him and he allows it to happen in the most intimate of ways. Jesus was so vulnerable even to his enemy that he lets one of his dear friends betray him with a kiss. Consider that. He actually allowed Judas to to come close enough to him to identify who it was that the Romans were to take and capture with the most intimate of expressions. You betray me with a kiss, Judas, he asks. What a painful picture. How could Jesus have the emotional and the physical courage to go through such intense vulnerability, pain, and suffering? Only because he knew, as it tells us in John 13, at the beginning of John's discourse on the upper room and then ultimately the passion of the Christ, he knew who he was, where he came from, and where he was going. That confidence that only the spirit of God can give you in your identity will give you the security to live vulnerable even when that vulnerability and love is not reciprocated, even when that vulnerability and love is hated and despised and the ability to do it in the most difficult of relationships and often that relationship is the one with your spouse or your mother or your father or your sister or your brother. And those are the places where we learn to walk this out, generously giving and receiving love and intimacy from an open, vulnerable heart. 2 Corinthians 6:11. The book of 2nd Corinthians is Paul trying to write his relationship with a church that he says to them, I am your spiritual father, you have not many teachers, but I am your father. And they had begun to receive the instruction of other teachers, and they had kind of forsaken and, and disowned Paul, and he comes back to them and he says, In 2 Corinthians 6.11, if you want to open up your Bibles to it, or uh, look it up on your phone, he says, we've spoken to you freely, O Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children, open wide your heart also. He's inviting his spiritual children into a renewed intimacy with him and he's doing it not by saying, open your heart up to me and then I'll open my heart to you, right? What does he say? He says, my heart is open to you. My heart is wide open to you. I love you. I'm committed to you. Now receive my love. That's what spiritual family looks like. That's what real spiritual relationship looks like. When I think of the picture that I feel like for me embodies an open, vulnerable heart, I think of my youngest daughter. I'm blessed my family, I have four kids, I've got my little man, he runs around the house bellowing, he picks up his toys and he's just, there's just a constant roar erupting from his little belly. Aah! he's just playing with his toys. Even this evening before I came in for the service tonight, he just running around the house screaming, he'll smash it into the piano, just full of life and vigor and strength. He's a powerful little dude already at age, age four. And then I have my daughter. She's six years old, about to turn seven. I won't talk too much about my 10-year-old or my seven-year-old, but my, my six-year-old, my youngest girl, she's, she's the, her name's Pearl, and it's an appropriate name because she's just sweet and precious. Right? And this little girl embodies in my mind the character. So while little boys running around bellowing, she just climbed up into my lap tonight and, and fell asleep on me, actually, before we had dinner. And she just loves to snuggle, loves to cuddle, loves to hold me more than any of my other children. And when I think of this picture of an open, vulnerable heart, and I was writing out what are the characteristics, because I want to define it as we're talking about it in this series. I want us to understand what's the picture of this one who's an open, vulnerable heart. And I think someone who has an open, vulnerable heart is able to trust easily. They're able to be innocent and hopeful, and they're able to offer generously love and strength. My children freely give especially little Pearl, she freely gives affirmation, Daddy, I love you, from an innocent, hopeful heart, and she offers that generously. And if you've ever spent time around young children, there is that characteristic of just an open-heartedness, right? And what happens oftentimes is, is that open-heartedness, it gets wounded by the hunt of the evil one in people's lives, by the attack of by the attack of this fallen, broken world, and that innocence, and that open-heartedness, that vulnerability gets lost, and it gets damaged, and it gets broken. But see, Jesus says that, that those who desire to come to the kingdom of heaven must come to it like a child. Which I think both speaks of the faith that is required, the simple trust, but I also think it speaks of the innocence that we are able to have restored to us when we come to God like little children. And so these three characteristics, when you have a vulnerable heart, you trust easily, you're able to be innocent and hopeful, and you're able to offer generously love and strength. And so I think about, even in my own journey, seasons of time in which I, I was probably more like Little Pearl than I am like the version I've become today. Because life can be hard. And I can look back, and I've been doing some work in my own heart as I'm trying to live more pursuing, more open-hearted, more vulnerable. And I've bumped up against fears. And I'll talk in a minute about the things that hinder our ability to live open-hearted and vulnerable. And I've been bumping up against fears. And when I bump up against a fear or a mistrust or a place that says it's not safe for you to be vulnerable, I go, where did I learn that it wasn't safe? Well, it was back in this experience when this person treated me this way, right? Right? And we pick up these messages through the fallenness and our heart goes from being open to being closed because we learn somewhere along the way that it's not safe to live with an open heart because you will get hurt. And I'm not here to say to you tonight that if you live with an open heart, you're not gonna get hurt because if I told you that, we'd all know that I was a liar, right? If you live with an open, vulnerable heart, pain is going to be part of what you experience. But see, as an adult and as someone who's hopefully grown to be mature in the Lord, what you can discover is that in the midst of that pain, there is a comforter who can come and comfort you with such love and presence and identity that you can persevere through the pain and love through the pain to actually be wholehearted and vulnerable despite the bumps, bruises, and attacks you may take. And that's what it means to really live as a mature lover in Christ. It's not that it isn't difficult to love, not that it isn't painful to have an open, vulnerable heart, but that you recognize that it's worth it and that God is our sufficiency and he is the one who empowers us to live in that way, though it may be painful at times. God will empower us to love and love generously as never before. So I was considering what stories did I want to tell? Because I could tell literally a half dozen of them where the enemy struck in a circumstance and a little part of my heart closed or a little part of my heart died. And you know, there's been a process of recognizing, oh, I I I learned to mistrust in these situations. Now I'm going to have to learn to trust again and to not throw any shade on anyone. I won't use names or ministry names, but I do want to tell a story from the very first person that that, uh, that gave me any kind of leadership in, uh, in the church. And there was this guy who had a men's Bible study that I was participating in. I was a college student. And he invited me to come and and be mentored within his men's Bible study. And he was ministering to high school students and I was a college age student. And uh, this man really gave me input and guidance and was a real, I saw him at that time as a real spiritual father to me. And it was an important relationship to me And I didn't have the discernment to see the places where uh, this man who was in his 50s still lacked in some maturity and character. And I really trusted my heart to him in a significant way. And so years went by and I served in this ministry and then I came and and served in this church and became a part of the house of prayer. And he was ministering to high schoolers in a high school that I uh, had attended. And I, as a part-time thing, began substitute teaching at that same high school. And I thought, you know, it would be really good, it was a private Christian school, if I started some kind of lunch Bible study. And so I went to the chaplain at the school and asked for permission, and then I went to this mentor who had a Bible study in the evenings on a different night, and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a Bible study. And it was, you know, at a school where some of the students at his Bible study had gone to, and I was inviting some of those same students to a lunchtime meeting. And he didn't say, don't do it. He said, oh, okay, great. But then went behind my back and sent an email to the chaplain saying, I don't know why, that he disapproved of me doing it, that it wasn't something he endorsed, wasn't something he was in favor of and never came to me in person and said it. And the chaplain came to me and said, hey, this guy, Jeff, who I had said, oh, he's he's approving of this because that was the impression I'd had. He actually disapproves of it and I don't want to get in between you guys, but you need to go and settle this with him. And what I came to find out was, or my best discernment of it was that he was jealous that some of those guys that he had nurtured relationship with were now interested in having a relationship with me and wanting to be a part of my Bible study. And he felt territorial over his, over his students and me starting something that was independent from what he was a part of, right? And I don't say that story for you guys to obviously feel bad for me because we were able to later on talk through it and reconcile But what I learned in that moment, in one of the first mentorship relationships where I'd given my heart, was it is a dangerous thing to trust people. And that they will at times, even in the Christian world and in the church, disappoint you and betray you. And I learned, unfortunately, in that moment, I need to be more calculating in how I make decisions on who I trust. And that can seem like wisdom, doesn't it? Some of you may even be hearing that and you go, well, you may have learned a good good lesson there to be more calculating in the way that you give trust. But the problem is we then begin to formulate these lists in our mind of the certain things that people need to do to show us they're not like the people that have hurt us, right? And I begin to withhold my heart and instead of being trusting easily, being innocent and hopeful and offering generously, I begin to become calculating, cynical, and mistrustful. Now, does that sound like the kingdom of God to anybody? Now, there is a wisdom that says, don't cast your pearls before swine, right? There is a wisdom that says, Jesus knew the hearts of all men, and so he did not easily entrust himself to them, right? So there is, we could preach a separate message on the importance of healthy boundaries and we'll do that in another time. But the topic of tonight's message is how do you live in an open, vulnerable heart? And what I'm here to tell you is I think far more of us have been calculating and stingy with our hearts rather than open and vulnerable. And the reason why is you can think back on those experiences like the story that I just told and you can find a place where someone disappointed you, someone let you down, someone betrayed you. And now you've put that hurt into the next relationship that reminds you of that same thing you experienced. And so some of you nodding your heads. You're saying, okay, now tell me what to do. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that. We'll get there hopefully in the next 25 minutes. So here are the three things and I think I find them embodied in the story that I just told that can close an open heart. Are you ready to hear them? Somebody give me, you got to talk to me a little bit tonight. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Carry on. Carry on? Thank you, brother. All right. So three things that close at an open heart. We experience some kind of trauma, mistreatment, or betrayal. And in that, we stop believing the world to be good or God to be good. Right? And we know that this world is fallen and broken, but we also know it was created by a good God and it is being redeemed. And both those things are true. Yes, this world has fallen and broken and it's groaning under the weight of sin, but it's groaning out of a longing for the redemption that God is going to bring. And that redemption is not entirely future because the spirit of God is working through the people of God, bringing forth a measure of redemption even now. So there is redemption in this fallen, broken world. And so we can realize that though there is tragedy, though there are oftentimes ashes, God is at work bringing forth beauty and redemption from those ashes because God ultimately is good. And no matter what you've experienced and what kind of ash heap it's left you in the midst of, his plan, even in the midst of that, The worst failures of your life is to bring forth something beautiful and redemptive. And I can tell you in my own life, my deepest failures and pains have been the place of most visible redemption. And I'm sure if you look at the course of your own life, you'll find that to be true. But trauma, mistreatment, abuse, betrayal, they tend to tell us the opposite. They tend to tell us the lie that God isn't good and that the world is not good and it cannot be trusted. And that's why we have to filter things, not through the lens of our emotional experience, but through the lens of the word of God. So the first thing that closes an open heart is mistreatment and trauma, oftentimes leading to unforgiveness and bitterness. That's the second thing. We hold on to that trauma or betrayal and we let it actually speak to us continually how we ought to interact in the world. See, that's why, forgiveness is so important is because unforgiveness doesn't hold the other person captive. Unforgiveness is like, you know, there's an old expression that says bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Your anger actually does nothing to harm them. It only harms you. It only pollutes and and is a toxic to your own soul. And so oftentimes people experience mistreatment, trauma leading to unforgiveness and they hold to that unforgiveness. That's not to say it's wrong to be hurt when something painful happens to you. Forgiveness is not that we're immune to pain. Forgiveness is that we feel pain and choose to respond by releasing it to God and releasing those people from judgment and blessing them in the place that they've hurt us the most. It's not easy emotionally is the point. If it were easily emotionally, it wouldn't be a beautiful offering before God that we do it. It's beautiful to God when we forgive because he knows how deeply. Was it costly? What Jesus suffered on the cross, was it costly? Absolutely. Doesn't that make his forgiveness that much more beautiful? The forgiveness he extended and the forgiveness he gives to each of us. And then thirdly, we suffer mistreatment, trauma, We enter into unforgiveness, and then the final thing that closes down the heart is we begin to live in fear and mistrust. So we stop offering or receiving love because we fear being taken advantage of again, being subject to mistreatment again. In my case of the example that I told, that I would fear following the leadership of a a male leader or pastor or someone in authority because I would fear that they might betray me again, might go behind my back again, might be jealous of me again, might diminish me again or demote me, or in this case, cut me off and not talk to me. Because after that incident and after I tried to relate and and reconcile, uh, the person took a season and just wouldn't interact with me, I think, because they were embarrassed about what they did. And so... Our hearts, they close because of the pain of those past offenses. We fortify our walls and we decide, I'm not going to let myself be hurt in this way again. I don't know if anybody's ever said that to themselves, made that vow before when something happened. I'm never going to let that happen to me again, right? And what happens to your heart in that moment? You go, I'm going to protect my own heart. Now your heart, I want to say this to you, everybody in this room, your heart is valuable and it's meant to be protected. We'll talk to each other again now. Look at somebody and say, your heart is valuable and it's meant to be protected. The issue is you're not the most qualified person to protect it. <laughs> right? If you've truly given your heart to Jesus What we do is we entrust our hearts to the Holy Spirit and to God, and we say, I'm not going to protect, I'm not going to self-protect my heart, I'm going to live with an open and vulnerable heart, and I'm going to trust you to be my defender. That's why I can forgive is because there's a God of justice in heaven who says, when I forgive, literally, he says, you keep burning coals upon the head of your enemy, right? Right? Like for the one who chooses to live with an open, vulnerable heart, God says, I will rise to defend and protect that one. Because it's actually an act of faith when you don't choose to protect your own heart and to accept the, protectant, the protection, and I almost said protectance. that's a good word, protectance. the protection that God desires to afford you. Now, there's an interesting verse, John 7, 37, where Jesus says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. Some translations say flow from the heart. There's another scripture. I like to put these two together. Proverbs four twenty three. above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Now that wellspring, that fountain that is in your heart, out of the heart flows all the things of life. And one verse we're saying it's the Holy Spirit that flows out of the heart. Now, in this verse it says guard the heart. The way I'm understanding, the best way for us to guard our heart is to entrust it to God, okay? But the idea of guard is that you need to guard it because there's someone out to destroy it. Evil is in the world hunting you. I can tell you there is a clear pattern. If I were to unpack the entirety of my journey and story, there is a repetitive way in which, through no outward association except that the spiritual realm and the kingdom of darkness is real, there is a clear way in which evil has hunted me through the betrayal of male authority figures. It has tended to happen over and over and over again in my life. And I recognize that is the enemy trying to destroy something that is a part of my destiny. If you consider your own story, perhaps there's a generational issue of infidelity where the enemy has hunted marriages within your family. Perhaps there's a generational issue or a pattern of addiction in your life or the life of your family, and the enemy has hunted your family in that specific way. Perhaps there's a pattern of of poverty or a pattern of overindulgence. There are all these different ways in which evil hunts us in order to destroy what is most valuable to God, which is a heart that is vibrant in love. And if he can destroy your heart so that the, the flow of the Spirit of God is quenched by a heart that is self protected and shut down and unable to give and receive love both with God and among others, right? then the enemy, though he may not be able to keep you from getting saved, he can keep you from being an effective witness of Jesus. Because how will the whole world know that we are his disciples? By the love we show for one another. And you can't really flow in love freely in community unless your heart is truly open and vulnerable. And the reality is, yes, you're not gonna be vulnerable with every person in the exact same way. So don't misunderstand me in that. That would be foolishness. I'm gonna be vulnerable with my wife in a way that I'm gonna be vulnerable with no other person, right? I'm going to be vulnerable with my best friends in the way that I'm gonna be vulnerable with no other person. I'm gonna be vulnerable with my children in a way that I'm gonna be vulnerable with no other person, right? But when God brings people into my life, a, a, a leadership person who wants to pour into my life or someone that wants to be mentored by me or even just someone that I wanna share the gospel with, right, and these new relationships are being formed, do we relate to them out of a place of trust and out of a healed, open, vulnerable heart or do we relate to them out of the mistrust and cynicism and wounding that causes us to go, I can't really trust you until you've proven to me that you are safe? Are people meeting you in the place where you have an expectation that you're going to be okay and safe in relationship because the love of God has filled your heart? Or are you meeting people in a place where I have to protect myself because if I don't protect myself, no one will? And I ask that of you truly in this room when you consider the deepest relationships and perhaps even your relationship with God himself. Do you come on a foundation of trust that it's safe for me to be vulnerable because God has me covered? Or do we come to him with a place that says, my heart exposed is an entirely unsafe way to live? If you're coming from that place, I promise you, it's because something has happened to you along the way that has communicated that to you. And I don't want to lack compassion for that because I have experienced many things like that myself. But when those things occur in our life, we have to trust God to come in And restore that sense that people can be trusted, that God is good, and that even if our enemies come and betray us with a kiss, God's love is sufficient to give us courage to take our place and be crucified. And thankfully, on the other side of that crucifixion, there is resurrection and glory and life and I hate to break it to you, but the only way to that resurrection, glory, and life is actually through the crucifixion. The only way to really come into true Christ-likeness and love your enemies is to have some enemies along the way. The only way to fellowship with Christ in the suffering of betrayal is to experience some betrayal along the way. The Lord convicted me A few weeks ago, I've never been a proponent of the prosperity gospel because I believe that that view of Christianity doesn't work in a place like North Korea, that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and blessed in everything that you do. If you happen to be born in a closed nation that's going to persecute you and kill you for being a Christian, it doesn't work to think that that's the true sign of God's favor, that somehow money and and physical comfort is is the demonstration of God's blessing and it's contrary to what the Sermon on the Mount says blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who hunger and thirst blessed are those who are meek and merciful and so we know that the prosperity gospel in that sense is not true right though God is a provider but I came to discern and understand about myself that I had an emotional prosperity gospel Which meant even though I may endure physical suffering, God doesn't want me to be sad in my emotions or suffer pain in my emotions. And so I was giving myself permission to avoid emotionally painful things because if something was emotionally painful, surely God doesn't want me to have to endure that. So I can just excuse myself from that situation that puts emotional pain and pressure on my life because truly that can't be what God wants for me. But the Lord pierced me and said my son was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that emotional pain is not a sign of sinfulness. If it was, Jesus would have been an incredibly sinful man because he was emotionally pained about things all the time. The shortest verse in the Bible is, did he weep just because his eyes were teary? No, he wept because he had emotional pain in his heart and he expressed it. Yet we tend to correlate emotional pain pain with sinfulness but the reality is the sinless son of God probably suffered more emotional pain than any of us and that as you walk in righteousness with God and as you walk out righteousness in your marriage you're going to suffer in those closest relationships some deep emotional pain and you're going to suffer that for righteousness sake Yes, there's an emotional pain that comes because of sin. Yes, there's an emotional pain that comes because of the oppression of the devil and we should rebuke that. We should rebuke that depression. We should rebuke that ungodly sorrow. Yes, there's an emotional pain that comes of the fallen world that we're living in. But there is also an emotional pain that sometimes must be endured for the sake of righteousness. And we see that in the life of Jesus. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Rejected, In many more situations than he was accepted. And ultimately, his crucifixion was called for by the very ones who had shouted Hosanna in the highest only days before. Because he didn't meet their expectations. They rejected him with their own lips. And yet he died for them and deeply loved them. So I'll say it all again, just in summary, because I think there's value in repetition. There's three characteristics to an open, vulnerable heart. Think of my sweet little girl, Pearl. When you guys see her around, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. She trusts easily, she's innocent and hopeful, she offers generously love and strength. At your very best, there's some of you in this room, that's who you're called to be. You feel that even in your heart right now, and some of the mistreatment and the unforgiveness And the places of bitterness have stolen that from you and God wants to restore it. That open-hearted vulnerability. Don't let the people that were like my mentor and his misguidedness and his jealousy and his betrayal. Don't let those people steal that beauty from you. Don't let those people steal the gift of you living with an open, vulnerable heart. And so those three things that close the heart is the mistreatment, the trauma, the unforgiveness, the fear, and the mistrust. And that causes us to, out of fear, we stop offering because we're afraid we're going to be taken advantage of or we're going to be hurt again. And those aren't unfounded fears. The reality is you will experience pain if you live with an open and vulnerable heart, but what is what faith requires of you, is that you open your heart, not just to people that can hurt you, but to a God that can protect you. And from that open, vulnerable heart, though you may get incoming pain, you'll get an outflow of the Spirit of God. And I love that picture that Jesus Christ, though he took a spear in the side, what flowed out of him when the the spear struck him? Water and blood. There's a fountain deep and wide that flows from Emmanuel's veins. A cleansing flood beneath the tide, wash all my guilt and shame. It's from his pierced, though he received the pain, in that place of affliction, the cleansing and the washing of the blood to heal and forgive all of humanity. Now we won't ever We won't ever flow. That's the fountain of Christ, but Christ is in you. And when you live with an open, vulnerable heart, he says, he who comes to me and believes in me, as the scripture said, these same rivers of living water will flow, paraphrasing, from your open, vulnerable heart. So we entrust our hearts to the Lord to meet our deepest longings. And that's what we have to do to keep our hearts open. All right, so I want to close here on, on this. I want to take a moment to invite you guys to reflect and then I'm going to close with this final thought on how, how we receive from God in a way that protects our hearts so that we don't have to protect them ourselves. But I want you guys to pause and just reflect for a moment. If you have a journal or a phone, just answer these two questions. You guys didn't know you are going to get homework tonight. Some of you can do your homework in class. That's always what I like to do. Or you can take it home with you. Where has your heart been shut down? And where's the place you've lost the ability to trust? Was it because of the betrayal of a mother, a father, a sister, a brother? a trusted mentor, a girlfriend or boyfriend, a friend at school, an employer, a colleague? Where were those places where you suffered trauma, betrayal, and you know that a piece of your heart died? Some of you don't even want to think about that. But I want to challenge you. There's a place of healing and bringing that pain to the Lord tonight. And then secondly, what desires were wounded or unmet in these situations? What desires were wounded or unmet in these situations? For me, I longed for a father figure. And when one of my first Father figures in ministry betrayed me, that desire for male authority was wounded and went unmet. And it meant the next person that tried to fill that role in my life, I met them with skepticism instead of open heartedness, though they had done nothing wrong to me to deserve that. Is this practical enough for some of you in this room? Nobody knows what I'm talking about, right? I'm the only one who's had these experiences in life. Okay, all right. There are a few of y'all out there like, but I think that means I'm getting through, right? That's more like, I'm coming for you. Okay. And so in this second question, is your place of freedom? What was unmet? What desires went unmet? See, there's this, Great verse, Psalm 37, verse four, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And see, the thing that causes the most pain, oftentimes if you look at these situations where you were betrayed or hurt or wounded by someone, there was something you were really longing for and needing in that relationship. And because that person failed you, that need or that desire went unmet. And because that need or that desire went unmet, you really experienced something traumatic. You thought you had love and connection, you're longing for love and connection, that got severed. You were really longing for safety and security or provision, and, and that was betrayed, and, and you experienced a loss, and that desire, that, that place of longing went unmet, and what I want to tell you today is that there's not a single longing that you have that isn't designed to be met first in God. And if you will learn to take those longings and desires to God primarily, and sometimes he answers them through community and through people and through natural means, because he isn't just a God of spiritual provision, he's a God of natural provision, right? But what we have to recognize is that that person through whom God is meeting our desire, they are not our source, God is our source, And when we recognize God as our source, we can receive through this person, and then when this broken human being fails us, we can recognize God is able to meet that need in another way. So we can forgive and release this person that caused our expectation to go unmet, our spouse, or our child, or our boss, or whoever the person is that's failing to meet the need that we think we have that only they can meet. We can let them off the hook, forgive them, bless them, and even meet them in their inadequacy because we know where we've come from, who we are, and where we're going. See, you're not an orphan. You're not forsaken. You're not without guidance or without a mentor or without a leader. You have a father that's in heaven. Even if your natural father failed you every step of the way or was never in your life, you are not without a father. Even if your spouse betrayed you, you have a bridegroom king who is in heaven, who wants to nurture that part of your heart and provide those faithful, loving, safe relationships for you. But the trick is, instead of working to protect your own heart and get those needs met by your own means, you delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, not always as quickly as we want him to. He's not a cosmic butler, but he is a good father, right? And there's a big difference. I love Matthew 7, 7. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So your father is ready to meet your desires and give you good gifts. But because a father, he's going to do it in the right timing and in the right way. And that's not a cosmic butler. That's not someone who does what you want right when you tell him to how you want him to. But you can trust your father in heaven to meet you in the way that will most bless you. Because that's who he is. He goes, you're evil and you do that for your children. How much more does God who is holy? I love this verse. Psalm 145 verse 16. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. This is the one who is your father. And when you recognize that, I have a father who has everything I need in his hand. And his hand is open and generous towards me. God is good. He is redeeming the broken world that we are in. We are his children. And we can live trusting, innocent, open-hearted, vulnerable, believing all things. Love believes all things. Now, if you told somebody, you need to go out there and you just need to believe all day, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. But if you truly understand the safety you have in relationship to your father, there's no risk in living hopeful in this fallen, broken world. Because when you're disappointed, no matter what human being disappoints you, you have a God in heaven who's ready to come through for you. No matter how someone fails to love you, you've got a God in heaven who's ready to pour love upon your heart. No matter how you were failed to be protected in that situation, there's a God who's willing to extend protection to you and redeem you. He opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. So my own heart, you know, it was, it was wounded by the failure of that mentor. It's been wounded at different times by the failure of male authorities in my life, both family members and and, uh, spiritual authorities. Thankfully, none in this house. God bless the leadership of this house, thank you for that. But there's been moments when, even in the best of relationships, in my marriage, I've suffered disappointment. And the question is, am I going to grasp to get my need met from my spouse or am I going to recognize she's a broken human being just like I'm a broken human being? And both of us desperately need more than, more than either of us can supply. And if I'm not careful, we'll end up in a situation where we have two ticks and no dog, as they say. <laughs> Just trying to feed off one another emotionally when we have a reservoir of love and joy and peace that can be our supply. A God who says, if I will delight myself in him, he'll give me the desires of my heart. And so if I incline my heart towards him, I can forgive the places that my spouse has failed me and I can give her love freely knowing that I have a open reservoir. As long as I I keep my heart open freely in the love of God, I can flow freely in the love of God and I can give love to my spouse and I can receive love from her and say, thank you, Jesus. She's showing me your love right now in this relationship. And that's the place that our hearts get healed. As as we live open and vulnerable, there are going to be some Judases and then there are going to be some Peters. Now, did Peter disappoint Jesus in the garden? Well, he sure did. He denied him three times. He cussed and denied his savior. I don't know the bleepity bleep guy. And Jesus comes back to him. And says, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, feed my lambs, right? Even with Peter and Peter's betrayal, Jesus comes to him, he says, he's open-hearted. Jesus asking of his friend, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, then feed my lambs. Three times they have this exchange. And Jesus restores Peter through that exchange. And he receives Peter's love. And Peter and Jesus flow again in the giving and receiving of love. The open-hearted vulnerability of Jesus, the open-hearted, don't you love the Bible? And we see in that a picture of the restoration that can come when we live in open-hearted vulnerability. What gives Jesus the courage to live like that? He was secure in the love of his heavenly father. That he could take his deepest fears and his deepest pains to one of the very people that betrayed him. And he could invite him back into reconciliation and relationship, forgiveness. Can you imagine doing that with some of the people that may have hurt you the most? Now you have to discern, are they a Peter, are they a Judas, right? Some relationships are beyond reconciliation, but some aren't. How do you know the difference? You have an open, vulnerable heart. And you let God lead you and guide you in repentance and restoration, redemption, knowing that when you've really forgiven, that's when you're gonna have clear eyes to see this one who's hurt you so badly when you've come to the place in your heart that you ache with compassion and pray for them diligently, desiring the best for their lives. Then when God speaks a word of restoration, there's a willingness and openness. This is the invitation of what it means to walk like Jesus in the earth, with an open, vulnerable heart. Let's stand together, we'll pray. I hope some of you received tonight's word as an invitation and a challenge to go back and consider these places. Where has my heart been shut down? What are the desires that have gone unmet and how do I take them to Jesus? And that last piece is the most important. It's also the most mysterious. I'll close with this simple thought because some of you may be saying, well, I don't know how to take my desires to Jesus. Like, how do I do that? And I want to tell you it's the same way in which you entered into salvation the very first time you received him into your heart and into your life. By simple faith. When we come to him as a good father and say, you know, I believe you open your hand, you desire the, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I believe that you're a good father who longs to meet me in my deepest places of longing. God, here's a place of desire for love, for protection, for safety. And once you're in touch with that desire and where it's been perhaps wounded or shut down in the past, you offer those places of brokenness and simple faith to God and he will meet you there, not as a cosmic butler, but as a good father. And so I wanna invite you even in this moment just to open your hands before God and to shut your eyes and to put some of those desires that may have been wounded and unmet in your life before him in simple faith. And imagine the good heavenly father, the one who runs out to his son in his tattered clothes and his sandalless feet smelling like pigs, that father who welcomes home in that manner, the one who says, all that I have is yours and I am always with you. The one who looks upon your life and sees every challenge, every betrayal, every difficulty. And he knows every place of hurt in your heart. And in simple faith, say, God, it hurt when I wasn't protected. Or God, I longed for a dad to be there and he wasn't ever. Or when my mother cursed me instead of blessed me. And I just long for the nurture of a mother. He sees, beloved. He knows your deepest longings. And for some of you, he's just been waiting for this moment when you would come to him and ask with simple faith. God, would you meet this wounded child? God, would you restore her trust? Would you restore his trust? Would you wash this child, make them hopeful and innocent again? Would you so fill me with love that I can give generously to all those around me? The Holy Spirit is here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling hearts with peace and joy and love, wrapping some people who've never felt safe, the safety of your presence. And I thank you, it's not just for this moment that. Some of you in this room, you're going to take this same little exercise in prayer. You're going to hold these desires and these pains before God. Each night, for the next few nights and through this holiday season, you're going to bring these desires and these pains to God. And He's going to meet you. So Lord, let tonight be the first night of a healing journey for many in this room. Let them be changed as you meet them as a good father. We trust you, God. You are good. You are redeeming this world. And we choose by faith to open our hearts to you and to each other. As we go from this place, let us be more generous in love to our mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers, our friends, our co-workers, Let the love of God pour from our lives. Let the love of God pour into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.